In preparing this paper on the presuppositions of the sacred, I have found that I have had myself to make one major initial assumption. I've had to assume that we are all standing more or less on common ground. And if this is in fact the case, it is extremely heartening to see how many people are standing on it. And I expect we have arrived on this common ground above all for two reasons. First, because we have become aware that something is very wrong with both life and art when they lose contact with the sacred to the extent that, in the West at least, they have done over the last few centuries. And second, and more important, because we feel that we are standing not only on common ground, but, to use the words of Keats, standing upon the forehead of the age to come, and that it is our task, even our duty, to try to give another heart and other pulses to the world. And that we can best do this by trying to renew our links with the sacred, to renew our sense of the sacred. What this means in relation to many particular themes will no doubt be the subject of later papers. My task, as I see it, is to take the bull by the horns and to define, so far as I can, the concept of the sacred itself and what are the conditions for its actualization in life and in art. And this, with a mixture of diffidence and presumption, is what I now propose to do. And if I do it in terms that may appear to involve what are mainly Christian categories, this is because it is with these categories that I am most familiar. The word sacred is one of a whole group of cognate words, sacrament, sacrilege, sacrosanct, consecrate, sacrifice. The original meaning of this last, sacrifice, being to, to make sacred, sacra facere. The root, then, of sacred is Latin and not Greek, sacra, still present in our sacerdotal, of or belonging to a priest. It denotes, therefore, something set apart, devoted to a deity, a holy offering. In early Christian language, it was applied in its synonymous form, sacramentum, to any object or action which, as mirror or vehicle, 
or form of the divine was regarded as revealing the divine. And we are here at once in the midst of things. The sacred is something in which the divine is present or which is charged with divine energies. This is to say that the very idea of the sacred presupposes to start with the presence of the divine or the existence of God. Without the divine, without God, there can be no holiness and nothing sacred. You cannot talk about the sacred without presupposing the divine, just as you cannot talk about sunlight without presupposing the sun, however many mirrors it may be reflected in. Further, God, the divine, is not only the principle, the original cause of all making sacred, of all sacrifice. He alone is sacred. At one of the most solemn moments of the divine liturgy of the Orthodox Church, the priest raises the consecrated bread before the congregation and cries holy things to those who are holy. Whereupon the congregation replies, only one is holy, only one is Lord, Christ in the glory of God. The presence of God, the presence of the divine, is, that is to say, the initial and ultimately unique presupposition of the sacred, for the simple reason that without that presence, that presence, there is no sacredness anywhere. This means that if, for instance, earth, nature, life, art, or anything else is sacred, This is because it is the expression or revelation of something infinitely more than itself, something which it but discloses or reveals. It is not because it is sacred in its own right, apart from this other that it enshrines, and still less is it sacred because we make it so. The first symptom of the profane mind, of the idolatrous mind, is its habit of separating its ideas of things, its ideas of earth, nature, art, life, or of anything else, from the idea of God. Because as soon as you do begin to separate these ideas from the idea of God, you have set out on the path that leads to the desacralization, the desecration, and ultimately to the destruction of the things themselves. If then something in the physical or psychological realm, the realm in which we chiefly experience what we do experience, is sacred, This is because the divine, that which is completely other, has erupted into or ingressed upon it. 
the sacred, that is to say, insofar as we experience it, presupposes, and this is the second presupposition, the the ingression of that which is completely other upon the physical and psychological realm. And this introduces the theme to which today's talks are meant to be related, the theme of man and the transcendent. Transcendent is a word which has many shades of meaning, but for the purpose of this talk, though without giving any finality to this usage, I use it to denote that which lies beyond the psychological and the physical realm, beyond soul and senses, beyond the psychophysical realm. It is synonymous with the divine and the uncreated, just as the psychophysical realm is synonymous with the created, with the world of nature. And throughout this paper, I use the three terms, the transcendent, the divine, the uncreated, as equivalent to each other. Just as I use the three terms, the psychophysical realm, the created, nature, as also equivalent to each other. This means that the transcendent is also that which lies beyond our rational and logical mind, since the reason itself is an aspect of the soul, not something that is other than or opposed to the soul. On this account, the transcendent is also beyond the scope of modern science, since modern science is confined to what our rational mind and our senses can embrace in their own right, quite apart from that which lies beyond them. To make such a distinction between the transcendent and the psychophysical realm is not to to affirm or to imply that we cannot experience the transcendence through both our soul and our senses. But this is something about which I will speak in a later part of this paper. I think that here I should mention one of the consequences of what I have just been saying about the transcendent, which is relevant to our theme. In much contemporary literature that speaks of a new approach to things, that speaks of mankind having reached a turning point or being about to enter a new age, the age of Aquarius or the solar age, one frequently comes across the word whole or holistic. We are asked to see things as a whole in all the complexity of their interrelationships and not as isolated, fragmented, non-participative phenomena or substances, which is the way we have been conditioned to see them over the last few centuries. This is excellent so far as it goes. But I have the impression that it doesn't go very far. 
or at least it doesn't go as far as the point that it would make it really meaningful. Because the interrelationships that are spoken of and the wholeness which they are said to constitute appear to be confined to precisely the psychological and physical realm alone. That which lies beyond this realm, the transcendent, appears to be tacitly left out of account, almost as if it were irrelevant to the real world with which science, including the so-called new physics and parapsychology, is concerned. From the point of view from which I am now speaking, to talk about wholeness or the holistic approach to things without including within one's perspective that which lies beyond the psychological and the physical is to put the cart before the horse. For just as there can be nothing sacred without God, because ultimately God alone is sacred. So there can be no wholeness without God, because ultimately God alone is whole. It is the divine that is the principle, the source of wholeness. And without participation in the divine, there can be no escaping disintegration, fragmentation, self-alienation, however much we may struggle against them. That is why when we lose contact with the divine or when we ignore the transcendent, we not only cut ourselves off from the source of sacredness, but also, and as a consequence, fall into a state of disintegration, sickness, self-division. It is, in fact, this losing contact with the divine, the source of holiness and wholeness, that is the crux of the fall of man. And our modern age exemplifies it as perhaps no other age ever has, because it is the product of a state of mind which has lost its sense not only of this fall, but also and correspondingly, of practically every aspect of the sacred. A mentality such as this builds a world in its own image, our own mechanized, industrialized, dehumanized, and desacralized world, in which man's separation from God not only alienates him from himself, but also separates the visible universe from man and makes both of them wanderers, lost travelers cast out into the deserts of time and space. And this introduces the third presupposition of the sacred. The presupposition not of God's transcendence, to nature, but of the mutual immanence, the mutual indwellingness of God and nature, the interpenetration of the uncreated and the created. 
We enter here, I think, a sphere of understanding which is absolutely crucial for our grasp of the sacred. When people talk about God, even as I have been now, and this is perhaps especially true in the Christian world, they often talk about him as if he were a kind of object. And if they go on to talk about the relationship between God and the world, they often speak of it as being above all a relationship of cause and effect. God is a world cause, a final cause or principle of being and existence. And the world and its laws and everything in it are what he has produced. Now this still makes it possible to speak of some analogy between God and the world, the uncreated and the created. It is still possible to speak in platonic terms of creation being the moving image of eternity, or in hermetic terms of what is below being like what is above, or to say that the visible world is a kind of divine cryptogram that we have to decipher. But in this view of things, it is difficult to go beyond that. It is difficult to escape from what one might call a kind of dualistic mentality for which the otherness of God is projected in the otherness of the physical or material nature of the visible world so that there is always a distance between them a hiatus, one which culminates in an absence, in the idea of a hidden God, a deus absconditus, and makes it impossible to envisage any nuptial union between them, any nuptial union between God and the world he has created. For this type of mentality... The miracle of this union will always remain inconceivable or illusory. The miracle is that the divine otherness about which I have spoken becomes for me more interior than my own soul. Experienced in this way, God is never an object. He can be known only through himself, becoming the absolute subject of my own being. Through, that is to say, an epiphany which in its own right displaces my ego or selfhood and puts in its place this absolute subject who is God. This means that paradoxical as it may sound, it is ultimately myself, insofar as God has become the absolute subject of my being, that reveals God to me, free from all objectivity. At the same time, and this is the other aspect of the same paradox, the divine subject 
is in fact always the active subject of all knowledge of God. That is why to worship God's gifts in other people is the same thing as to worship God himself. And so it is with everything in creation. Not only man, but every created thing bears a hidden poetic essence, a divine essence, its own interior seed of divinity, at one with its concrete appearance, in such a way that there is an intimate interpenetration, a secret coincidence between them. By mutual assimilation, creator and created, the visible form and the the divine idea informing it grow together to such an extent that each becomes the other's mine. The two become one. Or one can put this in another way and say that in creating all things visible and invisible, it is himself that God creates in another form. In creation, he becomes his own symbol. The image is also epiphany. Each created thing, that is to say, far from being merely the image that suggests or points to an intelligible reality, actually contains and expresses this reality. It does not merely signify It is what it signifies. A tree, for instance, is an intelligible reality that thinks itself in the form of a tree. Creation is the revelation not simply of a truth about God. It is the revelation of God himself. The heavens declare the glory of God. Heaven and earth are full of thy glory. The created world is God's sacrifice of himself to to himself in what he creates. It is the means whereby he is what he is. Where there are no creation, God would then be other than he is. And if creation were not sacramental, then God would not be its creator and there would be nothing sacramental or sacred anywhere. If God is not present in a grain of sand, he is not present in heaven either. In other words, the world of phenomena is also the theophanic world, the world in which God shows himself forth. In no way is it an illusion. It is fully real because it is precisely the other self of the absolute. Short of realizing this, one will always remain outside the precinct of the temple, outside the temenos. So long as there is, on the one hand, a subject, an I, isolated in its egoness and set over against the world of phenomena, and on the other hand, an object, God, a divine being, isolated and abstracted in its unknowability. There cannot be any access to the sacred, whether in life or in art. Transcendence and imminence are thus 
complementary, not contradictory terms. Without transcendence, there is no imminence, but equally, without imminence, there is no transcendence. And they do not make a double reality or multiply reality into two. Each of the elements of the partnership, God and man, the divine and nature, is or represents not simply the same reality, but that reality in its fullness. Each is or or represents both the whole and the same whole. And it is their vital conjunction, their dynamic interpenetration, which gives birth to the sacred and makes the whole visible universe the matter of a sacrament, a single icon of God, a holocaust of divine love and beauty. If this, then, is the reality of things, how, it might be asked, is it that we so fail to perceive it as such and to experience it as such? How is it that we have built ourselves around ourselves a world that witnesses to the desecration of this reality at every point and at every moment? A desecration which we perpetrate without even realizing, or generally without even realizing, that we are desecrating anything or that there is anything to desecrate. The temple robbers of old at least were aware that they were robbing temples. We have lost even the sense that there is a temple to rob, a temple to profane. And this gives us an impunity to commit our crimes, our day's work of slaughter and pillage, methodically, without passion and with no sense of guilt. We have stripped inner and outer landscape bare of all those emblems of sanctity, those recollections of sanctity which once nourished the soul, the shrines of saints, the retreats of hermits and holy men, their sanctuaries of worship and prayer, the festivals of song and dance in which they were celebrated. And instead of emulating their lives, we continue to cut the cloth of our mind and body, not in order to be worthy of the kingdom of heaven, but in order to fit more comfortably into our comfortless and uprooted world. And if we ask, and to our credit, we are beginning to ask it more and more, in the name of what we have reduced ourselves in this way, inflicting the same kind of distortion onto everything about us, we will find in the end that it is in the name of that mentality, with its pitiful complement of basic concepts, which is still committed to perpetuating this state of affairs, which still persuades us or tries to persuade us that we have the right, if not the duty, to invade and ransack the physical world at any and every point, to split atoms, dissect living animals, rape the sky, experiment with gene and fetus, and in laboratories, power stations, 
and factories to prepare those fruits, and by their fruits you shall know them, whose brutal inhumanity testifies only too well to the infernal source from which they derive. In other words, we will find that we have despoiled our inheritance in the name of a science that exists and can exist only through the appalling negation of all wisdom and true philosophy, the elimination of the person as of every other sacred reality, and the criminal indifference as to whether or not God is active in human and other life and human and other life active in God. Because that interplay of the uncreated and the created, the invisible and the visible, the transcendent and the immanent, which constitutes the sacred, presupposes the participation of man just as much as it presupposes the activity of the divine. And this is a further, a fourth presupposition of the sacred, one about which I will not say much here, crucial as it is, because it is the subject of a talk you will be hearing later today. But man's role is crucial in the actualization of the sacred, not so much because he is a vital link in the chain of being that extends from higher to lower down the scale of creation, as because he is a microtheos, a lesser god in a microcosm, a little world. This is to say that man is not simply one created thing, however exalted among other created things, or one created being among other created beings. He's not simply the microcosm in whom all that exists in the physical world is subsumed and summed up. He is also himself the macrocosm, the measure of all things, and the physical world is his creation just as much as God is his principle. This is to say that we perceive the physical world correctly, not with, but through the eye, when we know it as the living, richly varied, but scattered portions of man's immortal body. It is when we forget this and think of God as our judge and of nature as our mother that we go astray. It is this status of man in relation to the physical world that makes his participation in the process of making sacred, in the, his participation in the ritual sacrifice, as much a presupposition of its fulfillment as the activity of God. For although the physical world is so impregnated by divine energies that everything bears within it its own creative essence, its own hidden seed of divinity. This seed of divinity cannot come to fruition, cannot be brought from a state of potentiality to a state of actualization and revelation without human cooperation. 
It is not that things, what we call material realities, are objects in the sense proposed by modern science, but they remain in bondage, atrophied, stagnant, frustrated, unless they are animated by human sympathy and love. They attain their meaning, come to to fruition, and are fulfilled in human perception. It is through man as knowing subject that they are felt, imagined, and sanctified. It is in us and through us that the physical world is hallowed and that its intrinsic sacramental quality is revealed. It is we who are the priests of the temple of this world. For if this world is a mode of discourse between man and God, or the revelation of God to man, giving the measure of the transcendent unity in the variety of all things. Yet at the same time, man is the organ through which or through whom God unveils to this world, to nature, its own mysteries. And yet we can only our Selves fulfill that task, and this is a fifth proposition of the sacred, we can only ourselves fulfill that task on condition that our own inner world is animated by the divine. That perception through which we can hallow things is not ours, or at least it is ours only so far as we can go out of ourselves, not towards the physical world, but towards God. It is only when we can contemplate in ourselves the wisdom of God, the beauty of the poetic essences of the universe, and in their light recognize their counterparts or equivalents hidden beneath the outward appearance of things that we can reveal to these things their eternal being and bring this being to fruition. For like responds only to like, so that unless our own perception of things is itself charged with the knowledge and love that have their source in the divine, the latent seeds of divinity in what we perceive will not find in us anything to respond to and so will remain latent, in bondage, stagnant, and frustrated. And we will have failed in our role, and will have profaned and not hallowed the temple in which this making sacred, this holy sacrifice, is our responsibility. It should now be clear why we so fail to realize and experience the reality of things as they are, if only they were allowed to be what they are. It is because we fail to recognize and acknowledge, at least in effective existential terms, the bond that unites God and man, God and creation. And for all our claims to the contrary, we do not in fact act as though everything is or can be sacred, not on account of itself, but as a receptacle of the divine. 
We divorce our ideas of things, our ideas of nature, life, art, and so on, from the idea of God. Because of this, we cannot help abusing and denigrating the things with which we come into contact or make use of. Abusing and denigrating them. Because we are as unaware of their true nature as we are of our own true nature. For how we perceive things or reveal them to ourselves depends ultimately on the vision we have of our own inner being. And if that vision does not embrace the spiritual qualities of love, of beauty, that fill our being when we, are, when we attune ourselves to the divine, we cannot perceive these qualities in the forms of the things about us. We cannot perceive their intrinsic sacredness. The link between transcendence and immanence is broken. The intimate interpenetration, the secret coincidence of uncreated and created divine archetype and visible image is frustrated and the marriage between them remains in a state of suspension. In fact, it may often be, and in our world certainly is, far worse than this. For the more we fail to attune ourselves to the divine, the more we begin to live according to the illusion that our own self is sufficient to itself in order to be itself. The more we fail to assimilate the forms of eternal wisdom, the more we confine ourselves to the sphere of the psychological and the aesthetic. And the more we confine ourselves to the sphere of the psychological and the aesthetic, the more we become, knowingly or in a state of delusion, victims of our limited intelligence, our hallucinatory imagination, our unstable emotions, our own purely individual and subjective reactions to what we perceive or come into contact with. The deep-seated amoralism of the human being, his internal chaos, is now unleashed by the aesthetic impulses of the soul. And the images that they project into the imagination, far from having anything sacred about them, represent more and more an ontological perversion, a dissolution of the bond uniting the divine and the human, the uncreated and the created, and an eclipse of the inner content of things. And when such images and, and, and inform and animate man's perception of and his relationships with the physical world, or inform and animate his art, they produce not a revelation of the intrinsic sacredness of things, but a dislocation, a distortion that vilifies the very idea that life and art are or can be a bringing to birth of the beautiful and the holy. Art is, in fact, a sphere in which discrimination between the sacred and the profane, the sanctifying and the degrading, is particularly difficult and where confusion is all too likely to occur. 
Assuredly, the presuppositions that I have spoken of as a condition for there being anything sacred at all apply also where a sacred quality in a work of art is concerned. But when talking about the first of these presuppositions, namely that all sacredness has its source in the divine, I said that man himself cannot make something sacred. He can participate in the making sacred, but he cannot be the active agent. The active agent must always be the divine, to such an extent that in one sense, man, the I or the ego, does nothing. Yet by virtue of the fact that man is the image of God, he is also a creator, a maker, an artist. In fact, this is his only real distinguishing role, that which is capable of making him holy. I will sing to my God so long as I live, says the psalmist. And it is in this celebration of the divine, of his perfections and of his beauty, it is in this that lies our chief glory. As Dylan Thomas wrote in a note to his collected poems, these poems, with all their crudities, doubts, and confusions, are written for the love of man and in praise of God. And he added, and I'd be a damn fool if they weren't. A damn fool, certainly, if he wished his poetry to have anything more than an aesthetic appeal. But if, as maker, the artist actually makes his artwork, and if that work does possess a more than aesthetic quality, does possess a sacred quality, then is not the artist something more than a priest? And does he not himself make something that is sacred? Does he not himself make things beautiful, divinize nature? And in the end, is he not himself a power that sheds a divine and transforming illumination? As the young Gogol put it, if art does not accomplish the miracle of transforming the soul of the spectator, it is but a transient passion. And yet here precisely we are at a point of ambiguity. For if art is to transform anything, to reveal to something, its true nature, then it must also and simultaneously initiate it into the truth, goodness, and beauty of its own being. For truth, goodness, and beauty constitute the ultimate reality, the ultimate trinity of divine qualities. They are the distinguishing marks of the sacred. At the supreme summit of things, in their ultimate synthesis, the true and the good, in their symbiosis, their mutual interaction, give birth to, the, to beauty, are the source of beauty. Beauty is the splendor of the true, as Plato put it. And yet at the same time, it is an enigmatic quality. It is an enigmatic quality because if the truth is always beautiful, the beautiful is not always true. 
its initial unity with truth and goodness can be disrupted. Beauty will save the world, said Dostoevsky. But he added immediately afterwards, what beauty? For, he says, the heart finds beauty even in shame, in the ideal of Sodom, which is that of the immense majority. It is the battle of the devil with God, and the human heart is the field of the battle. Plotinus is even more explicit. Evil, he writes, is as though bound in beautiful fetters, as some prisoners are in chains of gold, and hidden by them, so that though it exists, it may not be seen, because it is concealed by these images of beauty. It is not only God who can clothe himself in beauty. Evil can as well. The devil can transform himself into an angel of light. And is not beauty, in fact, linked to the original fall of the most glorious of the angels? Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy beauty. Alas, through the will of the devil who aspires to destroy the harmony of the universe, beauty has been thrown with terrible, derisive laughter into an atrocious gulf, wrote a sadder and a wiser Gogol. And he also wrote, Better for you, beauty, not to exist at all, to stay away from the world. This double-edged nature of beauty reflected in the double-edged nature of art, whose most immediate and compelling touchstone is beauty, is due to the fact that although beauty is a divine quality, it is also the supreme aesthetic value. It is its aesthetic value, not its divine quality, that the scholastic philosophers stressed when they described beauty as id quod visum placet, that which pleases when one sees it. For pleasure is symptomatic of aesthetic experience, of things sensibly perceived by means of artistic forms. The soul is not evil. It is by nature pure and immortal, but its vision can be obscured and vitiated its imagination, the human imagination, can lose contact with the divine imagination. If this were not the case, every image issuing from the imagination would, would in its own right be sacred and there would be no need to hold a conference of this kind to discuss the renewal of the sacred. And when the soul's vision and imagination are vitiated in this way, the soul's outlets onto the world of phenomena, the human senses are also vitiated. Ears and eyes are bad witnesses for those with barbarian souls, said Heraclitus. And when the soul and the senses are in this unnatural state, they are incapable of perceiving or grasping the underlying, underlying reality of things, their sacred dimension, their hidden poetic essences, and these essences will always escape them. It is because of this that if soul and senses are to perceive the spiritual beauty of things, their sacred dimension, an ascetic operation is demanded, a purification 
a cleansing, not so much of the gates of perception as of the soul itself. This could be said, said to constitute another, the sixth presupposition of the sacred or of the actualization of the sacred. It is not that by means of this ascetic operation we have to suppress the senses or that we have to replace them with another and new receptive organ. It is that they have to be restored to their natural state if through them we are to perceive what is beyond the senses, beyond the aesthetic as it is also beyond the psychic. And a precondition of this is that the soul itself has first to be restored to its natural state, to its original purity. And this means that the soul has to free itself from extraneous influences, from these, those images unleashed into it by its own aesthetic impulses, so that it may once more become receptive to the divine light and to the forms of eternal wisdom which that light communicates. For it is only in this light that it can penetrate beyond the aesthetic experience of things and perceive their innermost reality, their sacredness. Only the spiritual can perceive the spiritual. And when the soul is restored in this way, made whole and sacred, then its imagination is regenerated and then the senses too are spiritualized just as what they perceive is spiritualized. That which participates in the light itself becomes light. The asceticism thus of which I am speaking is not an asceticism which opposes the divine to the human or the supernatural to the natural. It is not a matter of a transferring attention from a created object to a divine object. It is a matter of the metamorphosis or transformation of one's own subjective and inner being. For only when such a transformation has been achieved in us are we in a position to distinguish between spiritual beauty and its aesthetic simulation, between the beauty that saves and the beauty that enslaves. Because only then can we attune ourselves to and actively participate in the transforming beauty of the divine truth itself. Only then can we see the beauty which is a transcendent quality of being, a quality of the divine light in which all things are made. Divine beauty, like this divine light, is neither material nor sensible nor of the imagination nor intellectual, but it gives itself in itself or by means of the forms of this world and can be perceived equally well through the senses as through the intelligence and the imagination. This is not a naturalistic mystique, and still less is it a gross materialization of the spiritual. It is the vision lived and experienced of the communion of created nature in the uncreated reality of the divine. It is in sanctity, in the spirit, 
that man recovers the immediate intuition of true beauty. Salvation through beauty, the transfiguring of things through beauty, is not an autonomous principle of art. It is a religious affirmation. The beauty that saves, the beauty that consecrates the world and frees it from demonic possession, is a divine beauty, a quality totally rejected by the activities of the secular world and most of what passes as its art. For access to this beauty, the interior beauty bearer of the sacred message is barred by the angel with the flaming sword. The way to it is opened only by a birth in the spirit, a rebirth, which is the death of art and its resurrection. Its birth in an epiphanic art, an icon, in a recognition that true beauty resides not in nature as such, but in the epiphany of the transcendent of which nature is the cosmic radiation, the cosmic manifestation and incarnation. The artist can achieve his true vocation, make his art a sacred art, only in a sacerdotal art, in accomplishing a theophanic sacrament, in bringing to birth what is to come. Behold, I make all things new. It is here that contemplation, not aesthetic, but religious, reveals itself in life as in art, as the loving of every created reality. A love, an ontologic tenderness that raises what is created above itself and liberates it from its bondage, its isolation, and even from death itself. Only in and through love is the the ultimate innermost reality of things disclosed and fulfilled. Such love is not a divine quality, and still less is it something merely human or emotional. It is the isness of all divine qualities, their very essence. Apart from love, there is no reason for the existence of the world, and apart from love, the world has no purpose in existing, all other purposes being either auxiliary or merely false and superfluous. It is the ultimate irreducible touchstone. It is the seal and the consummation of the sacred.